Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Yes, good morning. It's Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on this spring day. It is pouring with rain outside, but uh, if you're inside listening to the radio, you're probably under your warm and toasty doona, so that's okay. And today we've got lots of information for you uh, to go with your Wheaties, politics with your Wheaties. And uh, we're going to talk to Don, Don Sutherland first up. We're going to be perusing the uh, industrial landscape for some of the uh, incredible things that have been happening over the last week. We're And to, this morning we're going to have the return of the uh, golden tonsils of... Uh, Marcus Harrington. Marcus Harrington is coming back and he's got a, a, a rip-roaring interview for you to uh, involve yourself in after eight. We've got This Is The Week That Was and we're going to t- uh, talk to Lou Wheeler from uh, Fair Go For Pensioners who have started, a, a uh, with others, have started a... Uh, a um, campaign for public housing. But uh, before we continue, let's hear from an, an important message from 3CR. 3CR is actively advocating for equality in the lead-up to the National Postal Survey on same-sex marriage. As such, we will not give airtime to the No campaign on the basis that it is prejudiced, homophobic and harmful to LGBTIQ people and our families. Our community may hold different views on marriage as an institution, yet we agree this postal survey is a political stunt designed to appease prejudiced and homophobic views. 3CR will continue to advocate for equality in all areas. At this particular time in our political climate, we need to ensure that our members, friends and colleagues know that 3CR is a safe space for all our community. Hi, Don. How are you? I'm really good, Annie. How are you? Good. Well, it's beautiful weather down here. It's raining cats and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so much to talk about. I won't go into the gory details of Sydney. <laughs> well, um, th- there has been amazing things going on at the moment. Uh, Nigel Hatchkiss from the ABCC, the notorious ABCC, has bitten the dust. He has indeed, and um, what a bitter taste it must be for him and for Mad Ma- 
Michaela Cash, the uh, Federal Minister for Industrial Industrial and Workplace Relations. But I think before we get into that, we ought to sort of try and do a very quick summary of, uh, I think, three things that are going on right now that uh, listeners perhaps should um, um, turn their antennae towards. Yep. Um, uh, And then swing back to what, uh, the contrast between what's been going onwards with uh, the industrial policemen for the construction industry okay. and the workers in the industry. The first thing is that uh, since we last talk, we now have the timetable for the next national wage case. And uh, the, uh, the Fair Work Commission uh, has set early March for as the deadline for the first submissions primarily from employers and unions about what next year's national wage case should deliver. And this has very important implications for the whole of the working class. Everyone in employment, whether it's um, too much employment or underemployment, and those who are unemployed as well. Uh, and uh, so I think we've got to think very carefully and talk very soon about what will be the character of the union movement's campaign to ensure uh, a much stronger result than what we have been getting in the past. If we're going to be serious about inequality, winning a national wage case from a worker's point of view is a major issue. Well, of course, everything's uh, been weighted towards the employer for ever since the, well, the Turnbull government's been in power anyway. Yes, I think the unions did much better in the last national wage case. Uh, nowhere near enough to make a big impact into inequality. But uh, they fought very hard for all workers, not just union members. Um, but that fight was conducted in the very polite terrain of... Um, uh, submissions and witnesses. There was uh, practically zero um, campaigning in which people, uh, masses of people were engaged in taking up this aspect, this vital aspect of the fight against inequality. Yeah, yeah. You mean workers had to take it to the line and they had to take the gloves off? I think so. I think the, um, uh, the employers know how to use their power inside national wage case processes and in other places, of course. Uh, we have to become far more determined and visible uh, and uh, assertive, uh, organising um, thousands of people to have their say, even though they may not be witnesses or... Uh, petitioners or anything of that nature. It must go, it must take on a much stronger industrial dimension uh, so that we bring more and more workers. Now, I think this has big implications for the ACTU and the union movement's uh, urgent necessity to make a breakthrough in reversing the decline in union density because doing that will be attractive to all of those workers who are on very low wages, who are dependent upon the national wage case, but who are not yet in unions. 
Well, you know, the story has always has, has been for a while now that uh, uh, the employers, the government's uh, regulations, the Fair Work Commission bringing down these uh, outrageous, I reckon, outrageous rulings that uh, basically undermine the uh, uh, conditions and wages and their and protection for workers in the workplace. But there have actually been. Uh, a bit of a pushback, a fight back. The the unions have actually had some effect and it really is up to workers to realise that the only way you can actually get a result is actually by being part of the union and changing the nature of uh, the unions that they're in. Yes, and um, I, think, I think that's very, very true. Um, I, I add this, though, I think that for people... The 85% approximately, you know, on average, who are not in unions, sometimes uh, joining a union, uh, there is a preliminary step, which is still union-like behaviour, and that is to begin to get involved, start talking with your workmates, um, uh, start thinking about these issues and working out what action you're going to take before before you necessarily join a union. Of course, the sooner you do join a union, the better. Um, but there is lots of good things, acts of combination, if I can use that way of talking about it. Grassroots uh, action. can be doing where they begin to learn how to exercise their power as a collective uh, and as participants in a working class movement that wants to reverse inequality. Well, you know the national wages case that you're talking about having uh, the uh, incredibly low uh, growth in wages, but in a landscape where profits are increasing for the employer class. Uh, and this, is, this means, of course, that the level of exploitation is extreme. How long can it actually go on for, uh, for the health, uh, health of the society? Well, it'll, it'll go on for as long as, uh, working people uh, remain relatively unorganised and therefore unable to reverse it. And uh, the uh, the responsibility for tackling inequality in the final analysis comes out of, to use an old-fashioned bit of language, uh, a willingness to engage in class struggle. That is... And the very basics of that are those who are not in unions but who are feeling the pinch, who are victims of inequality, uh, are able to start organising themselves and then to shift that organising process into um, into uh, union activity as well. You know, Don, if, um, we go, if we go back to the Stick Together program that was just on, which is a, step, a big steps uh campaign by yeah. early childhood uh, educators, uh, one of those speakers, uh, women that was at one of those rallies, she's saying, um, oh, I feel really invigorated. It's the first time I've come out on the street. Yes. Yes. That is, that is, when people engage in a struggle of that type, and that is a very impressive struggle because it's, it's uniting workers across dozens and dozens of workplaces. And it is invigorating and uh, transform people, transforms people's despair into a new level of determination. 
I just remind listeners so I think that that's a really, that is a really good example. Yeah, well, I just remind listeners they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast is, is with Annie, and we're talking to Donna, Don Sutherland. We're talking about the issues of the industrial landscape at the moment. Now, let's go to the fact that uh, in Parliament they've been looking at a whole range of. Uh, uh, legislation and this government was uh, accused by no, nobody, no lesser person than Gillian Triggs, the former president of the Human Rights Commission, a lawyer of uh, international standing, that it overuses legislation in order to balk its responsibilities uh, in common law as well as international law. She was talking about the Northern Territory intervention, but they are also using legislation in order to cripple the working class. And this thing called Protecting Vulnerable Workers Bill uh, I mean, it's supposed, you know, from the look of it, by looking at it, you'd think it would be actually dealing with wage theft and uh, other types of condition rotting. But actually, in the belly of it, it's all about fining workers who won't uh, dob in their uh, uh, um, workmates and fining unions out of existence. Well, the Vulnerable Workers Bill is um, one of um, two examples where the, two, the Turnbull government is beginning to make its own industrial laws. So when we talk about the broken, uh, the broken laws or the broken rules for, for working people embodied in the Fair Work Act, we, we have been talking mainly about the act that was designed by the uh, Rudd government, led by Julie Gillard back in 2007, 8 and 9. But what you just mentioned, the Vulnerable Workers Bill, is one of the two uh, quite immediate uh, initiatives, if I could use that word in a loose way, uh, from the Terminal government to make new law on top of those broken rules. Now, the Vulnerable Workers Bill there were was originated out of the exposures by young workers, particularly in the Wollongong area, but in other places, in companies like 7-Eleven and Domino's and so on, of the new business model of systematic wage theft by significant employers. And the original intention, if you like, coming from the public was for laws that would strengthen the Fair Work Act's ability to prevent uh, wage theft. And what it, uh, uh, what, what Mad Michaela Cash decided to do, or Manic Michaela Cash, however you want to call her, was to incorporate that quite secretly for a while, provisions that would give coercive powers to the Fair Work Ombudsman to investigate the workers yeah. who were lodging the grievances and the complaints about wage theft. It's outrageous. Uh, uh, it was outrageous. Now, the ACTU ran a very effective social media campaign, and that led to a Senate majority uh, rejecting uh, those aspects of the bill. Now, the bill is still not yet passed as law, to my knowledge anyway. I stand to be correct if I'm wrong about that. But um, the reports are that the um, those very obnoxious parts of it, from a worker's point of view, are no longer there. 
Now, the the second the second piece of new legislation has to do with uh, workers' uh, rights to control their own unions. Now, in Australia's workplace relations, there is a second piece of important legislation which is about the governance of unions. It's called the Registered Organisations Act, the Fair Work Act Registered Organisations. Now, what that does is set up all the rules which are incredibly impose incredible levels of bureaucratic and financial accountability uh, complications upon uh, uh, workers and their unions. So what you're saying, um, so no, but jumping in, so this is exactly the same approach as they've done with the ABCC, singling out the construction unions uh, and removing rights, basically. Yes, and the... Yes, the ABCC is the third example where they have made new law themselves and not just rely on the broken rules in the Fair Work Act. Right. But in the um, in the in the so-called uh, uh, integrity bill that will change uh, the um, the uh, rules under which unions have to be operated, they intend <coughs> that. Employers and governments will able to have a say about who workers uh, decide to be their union leaders. Oh, this is so outrageous. Uh, yes. Uh, it, it, the intention is to provide uh, employers and governments with the rights to intervene in the uh, participation of union members in determining things like who shall be their elected leaders or appointed leaders and also whether or not a scheme for unions to merge or amalgamate should it should proceed or not. So these are very serious serious interventions and the ACTU, if you go to the ACTU's Facebook page, there is a very good explanation, um, video explanation of what is going on there from Sally McManus. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so this is sort of part of the pattern. Yeah. The so, government so, is. So basically, oh, what I was going to say was that uh, uh, if people didn't realise there was a class war going on, this should be a wake-up <laughs> call. <laughs> it is indeed. I think... Um, uh, there are many dimensions to this class war, but it is happening all over Australia in many different ways. There's been a new twist in the termination of agreements um, uh, aspect of this class war. Um, we, we could briefly mention, and then we should say something about um, uh, the departure of the industrial police force leader, Nigel Hatskis. The new twist on terminations... Um, there is uh, there are a number of enterprise bargaining disputes, but one in particular, uh, streets in Minto, New South Wales. Um, the employer there is uh, ultimately Unilever, but Streets is the operating company's name. They make Magnums and things like yeah, that. Yeah, Magnum. Um, uh, just put it on your on your uh, radar. Magnums, Paddle Pops, yes. and Golden Gay Times. 
I'm just telling yeah, you. No doubt. Don't it's put them on your shopping list. <laughs> well, uh, I think it's not clear to me that the workers are asking for boycotts, actually. They are. <laughs> they are. They do want solidarity. The workers are still working while this enterprise bargaining dispute is on. Now, the two interesting features of it are these. Uh, the first one is that the workers have been told in very plain language while they're working that if they say anything in public, in any form of media, about the dispute, the company will invoke its disciplinary procedures and that could lead to dismissal. Yes, yeah, so they've tied their hands behind so their the back. The workers have been robbed of their rights to speak up about a grievance. That's outrageous. And this is... a this, I, I don't think this is the only place where it's happening. Oh, no. You then, combine it with, you then combine it with this. The company, at the same time as using a particular arrangement for the Fair Work Commission to assist with bargaining, has applied for the termination of the agreement, which will take the workers from the current agreement into a 46% plus or minus 1% or 2%, depending on your role uh, and wage level, for a 46% cut in wages back to the award minimum. And the rationale for that, and this is the twist, is that the company says it can make a better profit from doing it. <laughs> in other words, the company is not saying that they are in huge financial difficulty. It's just that they can be in a better financial state through this uh, uh, termination of the agreement and the associated approximately 46% reduction in uh, uh, workers' incomes. And this, uh, and this is a, a recurring... Uh, example of Horizon in Queensland's uh, in 2015, who said that uh, uh, certain conditions and uh, stuff like that were unproductive, and the, uh, the it was interfering with their profit. It wasn't in the public interest that their profit was more important was in the public interest, and the Fair Work Commission agreed. It, 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 it is the same type of thing, except the difference is that. It's in this case, uh, in the case of Horizon, they were able, I think, quite. They got away with blue murder here, but they uh, they sort of argued that they were they had financial difficulty. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's world's uh, smallest violin. Whereas in this case, they're not arguing that. No, no, they just I'm want more money. The arguments are not about financial difficulty, <laughs> but just that they, you know, they're going to be better off. Yeah, That's give all. me more. Give That'll me more. Yeah, well, <laughs> we wait and see how that will pan out. Now, like that, no, 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 but before you go on, so I do, I've got to say this, here they're applying all this legislative power and all these uh, uh, pushing people around uh, ability uh, with fines and jail and all that sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden, Michaela Cash is exposed as not following any rules, but now she doesn't get any well, punishment. Uh, it, it very much looks like Michaela Cash is going to be sprung. Yeah. Now, the reason is that earlier this week, the head of the Australian Building Construction Commission, Nigel Hatchkiss, who is a notorious hater 
of workers in their unions, uh, resigned. And he resigned because he admitted that he had broken the very laws that he was supposed to be uh, upholding. Uh, in particular, the, the laws related to uh, the arrangements for what, what is called right of entry of union officials into construction sites. And he resigned because uh, there was an email trail that showed that uh, his, his staff should, in fact, in effect, mislead employers about what the law said about the rights of workers to have union officials in their work, work site. And this so goes back to, to 2013. Uh, it goes way back to 2013 when that particular law uh, was amended by uh, the then Labor government. He didn't like the changes. He believed that if there was a change of government back to a Liberal government, that those changes would go backwards again to being more repressive. And therefore, he said, in the meantime, we shouldn't tell employers what the new uh, and better for workers' uh, right of entry arrangements are. That's, that's what it boiled down to. So he, he misled employers, uh, he broke the law, he resigns. Now, the question then becomes, he's probably, he's been doing that since about 2013, when did the minister, Michaela Cash, know that he was breaking the law? She has fessed up and said that she knew in October last year. But there's evidence in that she, words, yeah, but there's evidence that she knew in August. Uh, I, I have missed that. I didn't know that. Tell oh, us oh that, that was uh, Brendan O'Connor uh, brought up the uh, from the Labor Party brought up the fact that uh, there were there were. Uh, uh, paper, uh, there was a charge made against Hatchkiss in August, which means, of course, that uh, she must have uh, known. Of course. Of course. Well, thank you for that. I, didn't, I hadn't picked that up. Uh, what, I, what I knew for certain was that the, from her own admission, she said that she knew in October last year. And then the story goes, now, has she actually divulged this information to any of her colleagues? Yes. Yes. She is required as a minister, to report on anything like this happening to a senior officer that is within her portfolio. And the big question is, uh, when did she tell the Prime Minister and when did she tell the Cabinet? So, in effect, how long has the Prime Minister known and how long has the Cabinet known that they have had a person running the building industry's special repressive industrial police force who is a lawbreaker. <laughs> and all that has been kept in the sort of page two, page three, page five level of the major medias, major medias, yes, uh, and is now coming out into the light of day bit by bit. The rat is out. The, the story is, is getting bigger, and I think one of the, it's very, once again, for your listeners, if you haven't had the opportunity, go to um, Doug Cameron's uh, Facebook page and you will see video of his Senate uh, uh, questioning of Nigel Hatchkiss over the last 
couple of years, uh, in which, um, and that includes interactions with Michaela Cash, in which she defends uh, this uh, law-breaking senior official uh, and uh, adds to uh, everyone's understanding of the hypocrisy uh, of this government when it comes to law and order in the construction industry. Yeah. We should leave it there. You've got to go off and uh, be part of the Search Foundation uh, conference. Is that uh, right? Yes, the Search Foundation is having its uh, uh, national forum yes. to discuss these issues and bigger ones even. Great. Um, and uh, I'm going to participate in that. I'm looking forward to it very much. Thanks very much for giving us some time, Don. Thanks for having me, and uh, best wishes to, to you and all your listeners. It's a lovely program, and uh, look forward to it every week. Bye. And that was Don Sutherland talking industrial relations. Coming up soon, we've got Marcus Harrington. Yeah. What people keep talking about is money. The world keeps spinning. Trying to make ends meet, it's hard in this concrete jungle Trying to make something out of nothing Man, I wish I had it all Sometimes I wish I had it all They say money is greed And greed leads to power If I'm making money, it'd be ours Man, I wish I had it all Sometimes I wish I had it all You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie And hello, Marcus Oh, g'day, Annie. It's good to be back. And uh, now we turn our attention to the uh, Save the Victoria Market campaign. And joining us on the line is a legendary VFA figure, dual Coburg Premiership coach, but in more recent times a campaigner against domestic violence and currently spearheading the campaign to save the historic market is Phil Cleary. Thanks for joining us on the show, Phil. Oh, great. Good on you, Marcus. Great to be talking with you. And, okay, so Phil, last year you contested the uh, Melbourne Lord Mayoral elections on a platform to save the market from redevelopment, a market which has uh, been around for well over 100 years. So why do you think the council feels the need to develop what's been a popular establishment? Well, look, you know, the problem is that, Marcus, they're running a line that the Marcus, the market, I should say, is in decline. We would argue that where it is in decline or where it might be struggling in parts is a product of inaction by the council and by the management of the market. You know, you could go to sheds A, B, C and D and you discover there that they've adopted strategies and a lack of marketing of the areas that's really affected the way things operate. And there's a level of frustration throughout the market because of the uncertainty. One key fact is that the plan laid down by Melbourne City Council and market management is unclear. Most traders aren't sure where they'll be while this massive excavation takes place. There's uh, talk of of a greenhouse that's going to be able to accommodate a lot of those storeholders, but... The, the uncertainty, the loss of value of stalls, uh, the inability of people to sell out, and the fear that during the excavation they'll lose money is really rampant at the market. So 
Uh, why, just to come to the final point of that, that your question, we believe that what Melbourne City Council wants to do is completely sanitise the market, turn it into a kind of um, entertainment precinct, and it will not have the fabric, that romantic, organic feel of an open-air market. OK, and as recently as July, the state government gave the uh, green light for redevelopment. As you said, the excavation uh, will alter the site considerably. Uh, there's plans, is there, for the historic sheds to be removed well, from the site? Well, yeah. Look, I mean, all Richard Winner's given permission for is the high-rise on the Mercat site. Now, all right, we can live with that. Not that we agree with it. I mean, how many apartments do we need in Melbourne? There's a glut of apartments. It's not servicing... Uh, affordable housing or families, you know, they're dog box apartments. But if you step aside from that, Marcus, and you move to sheds A, B, C and D, what we do know is that there'll be a massive excavation under those sheds. So tell me, when you rip those sheds out of their moorings and cart them away, are you really going to be able to return them? Paul Keating, former Prime Minister, went on ABC radio recently and he condemned Robert Doyle's plan. He said it was a sacrilege, you know. We do not believe those sheds will come back in the form that they were. We don't believe that we'll have a return to an open-air market of the kind we have now. We believe it'll turn into a an entertainment precinct and, you know... And I think your listeners will fully understand this. It's all about a land grab. It's about a group of profiteers and developers looking at a site and saying, we reckon it's worth X number of dollars and it's worth a lot more in the way we want to reconfigure it than as a folksy, open-air, romantic, historic market. And, of course, the market is located on what was once a cemetery and under the plans the excavation would include a car park underground and cold storage. Yeah, well, there's a claim that they don't have graves in that section. It's been debated. There are graves across. We offered a plan that would put more car parking on top of the existing car park. We believe there's the technology to do that in a culturally sensitive way and in a way that doesn't uh, have a deleterious effect on the graves and that it could be addressed that way. We just reckon that once you go with that excavation, anything's possible, and the uncertainty about the council's plans leaves us suspicious. We've been told by a former employee that uh, the council was very sensitive about compensation challenges from storeholders around the redevelopment. And look, you know, I can tell you there's talk at the market about a class action. People are talking class action because of the impact of these plans. They are truly astounding. What they're proposing is truly astounding in that the lack of detail has people there so anxious. And I don't know, Marcus, whether you wander through... I was in there on Friday and I was just thinking to myself, you know, as I wandered through, I thought, what a beautiful place it is. There are students from all over Melbourne doing research projects. You stop and have a yarn. There are people doing stuff on organic organic foods. There was another group doing a survey on smoking in public places. But everyone loves it. And you look at the tourists wander in and love it and people wander in from interstate during the finals and love it. 
if it's got if it's declining in certain parts, then fix it up. But but it is a market. If if your store doesn't survive, it doesn't survive. To be a bit hard line about, it. but but storeholders accept that, you know. So it's a terrible strategy that they're planning. Okay, and the stallholders, some who have been tenants for uh, decades, are now unionised and prepared and willing to yes. fight the redevelopment, Phil? Yes, so there was a union meeting the other night. The unions have been well involved in this. It's been, you know, look, it's been a step forward to think that you could get a whole range of small traders to dr- join the union, the NUW. You know, that, that was a big step forward, and, and they've relished that. It's ebbed and flowed because people feel a bit isolated at times and worried about their future. But the union's been great with the, with those workers and has politicised them and had them understand their rights. So, you know, we're in a reasonable place. And in terms of the campaign, I would say to people, do not take this as a fait accompli, that it's, the redevelopment's going to go ahead. And also for progressive people in town, just remember that the Lord Mayor is a former Liberal and an ally of Jeff Kennett. You know, you're not talking about a progressive Lord Mayor. He's had no position on homelessness. No, Well, he's had a position on homelessness. He'd like to sweep them off the footpaths. I mean, progressive people in the inner suburbs and outer suburbs also who go into the market ought to realise this is a campaign that they should be part of. I campaigned around the East-West Link. I spoke at gatherings with Rod Quantock and Steve Jolly and others to stop the East-West Tunnel, and we did that. I'm calling on all of those people to support us. There's talk of a community picket line emerging, and I'd say to John Setka and Trades Hall, John, we need to know where you stand on this. Are you going to allow an excavation? And what happens if there is a community picket where are the unions going to stand? You know, there's some big political questions here, and there are questions, obviously, for state government. There are people around the trap saying, well, someone came to me the other day and said, well, why don't we have a political campaign at the next state election? So, you know, people are talking, Marcus. It's, it's a really important human rights question, the Victoria market. The rights of traders who've had generations there, Italian migrants... Europeans, Jewish community, they've all flocked to that market, made it a beautiful place. And you know what? I'd love to do a, a proper study of, of the well-being that it generates as well, apart from the economy it generates, but a you know, really significant place in, in Melbourne's history. And uh, speaking of the construction unions, it was back in the 1970s when the Victoria market was saved from demolition through the uh, builders' labourers placing a green ban on the site. Can another community campaign of this... Uh, that just saved yeah. the market 40 years on. It's nice to talk with people who remember their history. How old are you, Marcus? Uh, 35. Yeah, there you go. You're 35, but you know your history. And, and it's important for us all to know our history. That's exactly right. In the 70s, those unions, just like Jack Mundy in Sydney, who, you know, who loves the market and, and has given us his, his support, um, those unions then played a major role, and I think the construction unions have to play a major role this time round. That excavation will usher in changes to the market that will be catastrophic. So, you know, John Setka and others, we want you on our side. 
we want you to give your moral support. I know you can't give your support to picket lines, but if a community picket line emerges, we want the moral support of the community because we want to stop Robert Doyle's uh, treachery and Robert Doyle's scandalous plan. And how can uh, listeners participate in the campaign, Phil? Well, look, there's a couple of Facebook pages out there. You'll see the Phil Cleary for Mayor and you'll see Friends of Queen Victoria Market Facebook. Go to the Facebook. Register your support. Register your support for the community picket line. Just come out of the woodwork. Tell us you care and tell us you want to be part of it and and just do some research and ask us questions about what's wrong with this plan that Robert Doyle has proposed because there is so much that's bad about it. You know, if we put this up to a proper conversation anywhere, we'd win the debate. I have no doubt about that. So I'd say to people, uh, put your shoulder to the wheel, give us your support, Go go to those Facebook pages, register, and we'll be away. Okay, uh, thanks for joining us this morning on Solidarity uh, Breakfast, Phil, and uh, hopefully we can have you back on to give us an update of the campaign going forward in the quest to save the uh, Victoria market. Thanks, Phil. Thank you, Marcus. Cheers. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. And uh, that was, uh, of course, the return of the wonderful Marcus Harrington, who's going to be giving us some reports over the next months. It's great to see him back. And, uh, of course, it's very important, the Victorian market uh, campaign. Uh, the uh, Doyle is... Uh, a, a interesting character, you know, people, he's got recognition, uh, high recognition. I'm sure that's why he got uh, voted back in. I don't think it's his policies that are really doing uh, anybody any uh, good because, of course, it's really interesting about uh, Doyle. Uh, it, it turns out that uh, he's got a lot of uh, fingers in lots of pies, lots of de- development pies, and he has a very high rate of having to abstain, of, uh, abstain himself from any vote, for certain votes because of his connections with a whole range of different developments. It's a, it, it's a point of interest. Uh, we're going to play a song that has come straight from Manus Island. This is uh, Moz, who uh, got his words out off by phone. It's been put to music. I'm going to play the whole lot because last week we didn't get a chance. We only gave you a little uh, snippet. All the same, uh, you can get uh, his story uh, from, uh, I'll give you the link on the podcast. Moz uh, is on Manus and this is a, a song from Manus Island. Australians, pay attention. It's most from Manus, who's a stock in the hell since four years. 
without any reason. Listen to me for a minute, por favor. Just want you to be aware about what all the rats have done to me. Liberal label lying to you. I'm not terrorist, I'm not perilous. But they have put my youth in the horrible cage for cheating, money, running their bloody policy. So want you to get your shit together and sort out this mess. Or you always be known as Australia's next mess. Help us keep our sanity. Remember our humanity. I am you are. We are all the same. Help us keep our sanity. Remember our humanity. I am you are. We are all the same. Do you know if you don't put pressure on them, they will abandon me in limbo. No worries when I hear sorry from you. But you know your silence brings them strength and happiness Your government treats us like animals While the UN say we're not criminals Peter Dutt and Malcolm Turnbull hang your head in shame It's a crime you have committed in Australia's good day So want you to get your shit together and sort out this mess Or you always be known as Australia's excess Help us keep our sanity Remember our humanity voice from a menace, we're all the same. Uh, the uh, Peter Norman Day uh, kicked off the launch for the Peter, Peter Norman Day commemoration it was held last week in uh, last Tuesday at uh, what's remaining of the city square, which is uh, at the moment being uh, uh, is a work site for the new uh, tunnel. Uh, the uh, new upgrade of the uh, public transport system in Melbourne. But uh, on October the 9th, the actual day of Peter Norman's funeral, uh, uh, October the 9th, there's going to be a commemoration of Peter Norman outside the Town Hall in Melbourne at uh, 12 o'clock noon. And uh, you know that the campaign is about getting a statue to commemorate uh, Peter Norman, who was a great uh, advocate for human rights. He was the third person on the uh, podium at the 1968 uh, Mexico Olympics that caused such a stir where the uh, two black Americans uh, who came first and third, uh, Peter Norman, of course, came second in that 
race, 400 metres. Uh, they put up the uh, uh, Black Panther salute, the Black Power salute. It caused an enormous stir uh, with these uh, crazies uh, saying things like, oh, you shouldn't, uh, uh, politics and sport shouldn't be seen in the same name, uh, being talked about in the same breath which is uh, nonsense in itself, but it was a very brave act, had consequences for Peter Norman for the rest of his life, as well as for the uh, two uh, black Americans. But in in America, there is a uh, statue commemorating this groundbreaking event. In Australia, what happened to poor old Peter Norman was that he was ostracised, even though uh, his... Uh, Running feats had never, I don't think they've actually been, um, his, his record has been broken. <laughs> but anyway, he was uh, assiduously ignored and uh, he had uh, a great deal of trouble in his life. But he maintained his respect for human rights and it's been, there's a call for him to be commemorated, that in actual fact probably the uh, train station ad in, uh, he's a co-Bergman, man, he sh- uh, that there should be a park named after him, that there should be a a day and there should be a statue. It caused international news that this call was made. And interestingly enough, the only people that weren't interested was the mainstream Melbourne media. It wasn't a story, but it was a story for the rest of the world. Anyway, there's going to be a proper commemoration. Uh, There could be a... um, uh, Peter Norman's mother may be there. His uh, daughters will definitely be there. Uh, it's a, a very uh, important day. Uh, we should be celebrating people who celebrate human rights uh, instead of these uh, statues around the place for people who denigrate uh, humans and our environment. Uh, coming up next is, of course, the most important part of Solidarity Breakfast. A week solidarity, Becky Team listener, when, well, we always conclude with good morning, but this morning, the morning is spelt as in the verb to mourn, and I'm sure no matter how this segment tries, nothing will cheer us up this morning as we mourn the sad demise of the head of the Inquisition. Smash the unions, jackboots, con mission, big supremo, Nigel Hedge, kiss the bosses who sadly this week was forced to kiss the bosses goodbye. A man who so believed in the need for laws to smash evil unions and toss lazy avaricious workers into the dungeon, he made his own laws. Laws to uphold the dear baby Jesus-given truths behind the Inquisition, the theology of the greatest little economic order of them all, allowing besieged caring employers the chance to charge evil union officials and workers under the non-laws he created. And he had a perfect reason for doing what he did. He knew the laws he made up should have been the law. And would have been if it wasn't for the goody-goody black armband lot who think, for instance, those diabolical influences union officials should be allowed to talk to union members. For goodness sake, poor Nigel knows the only good worker is a worker who exercises her or his right not to join a union. And the way to stop evil is to make it illegal to join a union. But now, alas, poor Nigel, whose credentials as a former, sorry, upholder of capitalist law and capitalist order, made him the perfect inquisitor to creak the rack and fill the dungeons in the name of capitalist law and capitalist order. So I know, listener, like me, you, we feel so 
for poor Nigel this morning. Interesting the way some people hide their mourning, their despair, their sense of loss. All those poor distressed building workers forming a guard of honour for poor Nigel, waving union flags, illegal union flags, overlooked by Scabby the Rat, illegal Scabby the Rat blowing in the breeze and cheering loudly. Guess it helped them handle their grief, get over the tragedy. To make matters worse, the evil he was burning at the stake is now suing him for having it charged with laws that were not laws, showing how evil unions have no respect for the law. And to compound their evil, they have been critical of a Minister of State, showing their total disregard for the law of any sort. No less a minister than the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Koch, the workers herself a former partner with great caring business class law firm Free Kills the Workers, just because Macalia knew for 12 months that Nigel was persecuting workers under Nigel's law, but poor Macalia was just following her principles, hating workers and destroying evil unions. Good honour. Just doing what she needs to do, just doing her job. Which is why Lord Rupert of Wapping managed to cover the whole saga in six pars buried at the bottom of an inside page, squeezed into invisibility beneath a double-page spread, continued from P1, sensation, sensation, on alleged corruption in the pejorative Dan socialist state government. And we can be sure if a pejorative Dan senior bureaucrat had been advising, say, evil unions to take action on a made-up non-law, and a pejorative Dan minister had been aware of the advice and condoned it for 12 months, Lord Rupert would consider it too warranted no more than six pars buried back in the book. No P1 pejorative Dan sensation, sensation, double-page spreads inside in that case. Although on that alleged corruption bit, we must be equally distraught that that champion of the working class, who has devoted so many years fighting for socialism by putting his bum on the plush seats, Kim Il-Kar, is caught up in the allegations. But moving on, we must move on, listener, despite our grief over poor Nigel. I'm becoming sick and tired of this concerted campaign to out-satire satire. This time, the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party's decision that it could not support a clean energy target if it included clean energy. <laughs> How can we compete with that? To prevent irresponsible warmest destroying jobs and growth in the great fossil corporations, a clean energy policy excluding clean energy must embrace coal. But in fairness to the hayseed and sheepshit lot, they're talking clean coal. Obviously, the call for towels to clean themselves came from spending the weekend with their heads buried in the conference coal sands. And the party's possibly not eligible leader, Barnacle, praised an impassioned plea for coal to drive our energy policy right up to the end of the world from also possibly not eligible former Minister for Coal, Matt Canavan of Coal, describing Canavan of Coal as one of Trublawazi's great minds. A fact which had somehow escaped us, but then Barnacle didn't qualify his statement by declaring the criteria on which his assessment was based, like comparing Matt's mind to his own, in which case it wouldn't necessarily put Matt in the Mensa class. 
still good to see the government practicing what it preaches about market forces and competition and all that by attacking a corporate fossil for practicing what the government preaches and ignoring the government's invocations not to practice what the government preaches. AG Health for Consumers maintains its decisions will be based on market forces, its bottom line and its shareholders' interests. Big Supremo Malcolm Tunnable was very angry. That is outrageous. My government is concerned about the community's interests. Uh, but Malcolm, you always say the community's interest is served by market forces, the bottom line and, and shareholders' interests. Look, obviously that is the case, but that truth must be balanced against the fourth great belief, uh, which is uh, my political interests. Malcolm and his deputy Big Supremo Barnacle, fresh from supporting that clean energy target as long as it does not involve clean energy, expressed their concern for all of us by declaring they were, they were prepared to provide a few trillion in corporate welfare to keep an ageing fossil plant open. Uh, yes, Barnacle, why do you oppose clean energy in a clean energy target? Because it costs too much in government handouts. It must stand on its own feet. With similar logic, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, real quote, satire out satired again, stood in front of a fossil power plant in Dakota and declared the Paris Accord was a job killer. Bad, very bad. And the North Dakota pipeline was open for business. Good, very good. And that his thoughts and prayers were with the hurricane victims without blushing. Obviously, his thoughts hadn't run to the obvious, which, if addressed, might obviate the need for prayer. Although it probably wouldn't, because we presume he prays to himself. Then again, there's no contradiction in Donald's world in eulogising and promoting fossils while the hurricane lashes around him, given that last week he ruled that all these young people who have lived in the US of almost since birth must be deported. Good, very good and this week was negotiating on ways to ensure they must not be deported. Good, very good. Sorry, listener, but I can't update you on what his position is this morning. Not very good, as yet another tragedy unfolds in Myanmar with thousands of non-people Rohingya fleeing persecution. My word, there's a lot of non-people in the world, isn't there? The non-people of the West Bank and Gaza, the Terranullius non-people right here in Trubalawazi, to name a few. Non-people Rohingya fleeing persecution and attempted genocide. The country is fortunate it has a Nobel Peace Laureate to prevent the slaughter and dislocation. Wrong Sin Won't See, who took a leaf from Donald's book, declaring the coverage has been a huge iceberg of false information. In other words, fake news. So apparently the thousands we see on our telly every night describing atrocities must all be actors paid by the forces of evil out to overthrow the Myanmar generals. Given we wouldn't question the word of a Nobel laureate, then the alleged disregard for her election, followed by years of persecution and house arrest by the very generals she's now palsy-walsy with, must have itself been a huge iceberg of false information. The poor, misjudged generals. 
disrespectful comment from another Nobel Peace recipient, South Africa's Desmond Tutu, who apparently feels the Rohingya issue just may not be an iceberg of false information, decrying the fact that if the price of being in government must be silence, then the price is too high. Then again, we can be sure the non-people of the West Bank and Gaza made non-people through the terrorism of former Zion Big Supremo Begin, or the wedding parties of Afghanistan and Pakistan terrorised by the buzz of drones set on their lethal missions by former US of Big Supremo Barack for change, 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 must appreciate the peace those two Nobel Peace recipients have showered upon them to name just a couple of notable people of peace. Then again, Barack's successor wants to bring peace to our part of the world through a bit of fire and fury, fire and fury like the world has never known. Good, very good. Wipe a country off the face of the earth before the fossil sea supports do it to the whole earth anyway. And obviously he's found a way to make sure the nuclear clouds stop when they hit what used to be the border. Finally, sorry, but I know nothing this morning can overcome our grief, assuage our grief at the demise of poor Nigel, other than to comment as some sort of solace that it couldn't happen to a nicer, could it? <laughs> Good morning. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Yes, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we've got Lou Wheeler on the line. G'day, Lou. How are you? I'm good, Annie. Yeah, good to hear you. Now, we're, we're talking... Uh, uh, fair go for pensioners, but uh, you've been part of uh, Hands Off Public Housing. Yes, uh, yes, we have. We um, Fair go for pensioners got terribly concerned about uh, what we were hearing about the government's, the state government's plans for um, the, their so-called renewal of public housing, and uh, we invited Friends of Public Housing Victoria to join our coalition um, because they'd been working in this area for longer than we had, um, and uh, from that arose um, the campaign called Hands Off Public Housing, and this came out of an initiative of the um, Melbourne Unitarian Peace Memorial Church. So it's a three-way, um, a yet another coalition, a three-way um, yes, coalition to try and overturn what the government is planning because they're uh, planning to basically privatise public housing in Victoria, or a good part of it, up to 80%, as we understand it. Yeah, do you want to tell, give us a feel of the meeting? Because uh, that last uh, Thursday, there was the inaugural meeting, wasn't there? That's right. We've been working for um, over a month on um, building a forum for that meeting, and over there were just um, short of 50 people there, and it was mostly um, organisations who'd been involved in uh, the provision of um, homelessness services and public housing, and um, it was community, it was unions, it was public tenants, and it was very evenly balanced in terms of numbers, and that forum was to look at 
um, you know, what did the stage one public housing mean? What are the concerns that the people there had about the the uh, the issues that it raised? Um, what additional percentage of public housing did people think were acceptable? Um, and what were the alternatives to moving tenants away from their local communities and their homes? Um, so there was a whole range of um, questions uh, addressed and basically um, the uh, the majority there, in fact, uh, it was you, you know, I think about 99% said we want 100% public housing and um, that's their view that, in fact, you know, there's, with the homeless rate in Victoria as well as the waiting list in public housing, you've got 58,000 people um, looking for a, a roof over their heads and um, with this crisis in housing to be suggesting that you actually um, give away, basically you're going to sell off public lands to private for-profit developers at discounted rates on the basis that a, a meagre 10% increase in that housing stock will be the result. Now, when they talk about that 10%, they don't really even mean public housing. They mostly mean community and or social housing. Yeah, so They're do you want to tell do you want to tell people Lou what the distinction is? Because I know that some the, people think I can't, that I can hardly saying, hear you. Oh, uh, the distinction between social and community housing and public housing. A lot of yes. people seem to think that they're the same thing. The propaganda has been quite successful in making blurring the lines. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly right. Public housing is housing that is owned and managed by the Director of Housing in Victoria. You know, I mean, they'll have different titles, but it's basically owned and managed by the government and is provided to eligible disadvantaged Victorians, including those who are unemployed, on low incomes, um, with a disability, uh, with a mental health issue, or at risk of homelessness. Community housing can be owned and or managed by community housing agencies for low-income people, including those eligible for public housing. And they're regulated, they're private, they're regulated by the government. Social housing, now these are definitions that the, go the government gives in, the, um, in its introduction to its Homes for Victorian policy that was unveiled earlier this year. So how... Social housing is social housing. It's an umbrella term that includes both public housing and community housing. And it usually comes along with a subsidy, um, you know, to help support the rent within not the public housing because public housing tenants have a rent that's pegged to, you know, their income so that it's 25% and it's capped, whereas with community housing, it can be capped at 30 or 35%. That's informal. The cap actually is at 80%. It's only in terms of the non-profit um, community housing agencies, they, they charge rent at 30 to 35 but there is that ability to charge up to 80%. That's community yeah, housing, yeah, so yeah. it's private. Uh, Lou, and when they talk in percentages, people have to realise that in these community housing, they can say say 35 or 40% of your your income, but then you have to have a set amount of income that allows for the amount that they want to receive from you. 
This is quite different from public housing. So, you know, you have to earn $25,000 and then it can be 40% of that, right? But you can't earn $12,000 and pay 40% of that. That's what I'm getting getting people to realise. Yes, that's exactly right. And also, it's to do with the subsidy, whether you can get the maximum rate of um, Commonwealth rental assistance as well. Right. So so it's... So it's very tricky and it's not any, it's nothing like affordable housing for low income people. And when we talk about low income people, we mean the bottom 40% of um, income earners. And for vulnerable people, they can't afford those increased rates. And this is really what's going on. Uh, did the you, government. Uh, Lou, Lou um, was there a lot of understanding at the meeting of uh, the issues that are? Uh, at hand? Uh, absolutely. The um, people were, were very well attuned to um, the, the way in which the government is fudging those definitions and confusing people because while they give you the, the clear outline of what the definitions are, they then go on to talk and interchange the terms. You know, you'll hear they'll be talking about, you think they're talking about public housing, but they use the term social housing or they use the term community housing, and you still think they're talking about public housing. So that was clearly understood. The um, the relocation of tenants, and this is where it all gets lost because it's the... these. This is public housing. These are people's homes and they've been told because there's redevelopment going to go on, they've been told they must be ready, packed, ready to leave by the end of the year. The end of the year. I mean, what a time to tell people to leave. Um, to They don't know where they're going. They don't know for how long and they don't know where they're coming back to. Like it is just appalling and the level of anxiety that and fear because... You know, we're talking about families. We're talking about people who may have lived in in the in their homes for decades. It's something that is quite, um, you know, really quite shocking to put on people, and then to tell them, "Well, be ready to go, but we can't tell you where you're going at the moment." Um, and that is the current situation. So it's clearly understood. The privatisation issue was very clearly understood. And people, um, you know, these are public assets, public land. It's public land. They are public assets. It's not in the interests of the public to sell off this land. I mean, it's a, it's a no-win game for for the state and for the people of Victoria because you, if you sell it off now, there's going to come a time when you have no more land to sell off. So even on that basis, it doesn't make sense. But in terms of selling it off to private developments for profit at a discount, so that's happening as well. They're going to transfer um, the management of 4,000 public housing properties over to community housing. And so... Those now the government, going... the government's continue, the Victorian government, and this is happening in other parts of Australia as well. The Victorian government maintains steadfastly that this is an answer to the uh, homeless problem, and uh, uh, they're no good at running public housing, and uh, that's not their core business, and all this sort of crap, and that private and public uh, partnerships are the go. But in actual fact. Private and public partnerships are on the nose, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that this is a Thatcher idea, social housing, and of course they've 
completely annihilated public housing in the UK and um, it's spread across a lot of countries and now in Australia it's the neoliberal ideology of small government and uh, to get out of the business and the market can do it better which is clearly a nonsense and um, the uh, you know it's so distressing to know that the government is going down this path because the money is there they've put the money and there's a social housing um, growth fund so there could that that money could be put into the public housing the other um, uh, nonsense is that you know the governments can't run things they can run things very well they've been running down the maintenance of the properties and that is true but it's not true for all of them we've been on the estates and we've been into some of the properties and there's one particular estate that we've been on where the, it's constructed of double brick. It's not flammable cladding. Um, and the properties have all been, of the 36 units that are on that estate, 30 of them have been renovated within the last five or so years. They're beautiful. They're going to be demolished. I mean... You know, the most fascinating thing about this, Lou, is that all these housing estates are in locations in Melbourne that are very high property value uh, value areas now. Oh, absolutely. They weren't when they were built, but they are now. That's right. We've got Ascot Bay, where we've got Brighton, we've got Brunswick West, Clifton Hill, Hawthorne, Heidelberg West, Northcote, North Melbourne, Paran. Yes. The nine estates that we're actually talking about at the moment, which is stage one, and there's going to be a stage two further down the track. Um, it's very high, high yield um, land, yes, and and of course the gentrification, I guess, is part of that. The um, you know ever expanding population of Greater Melbourne is part of it. Desperate need for people to have a housing. So what we'll do? Oh, what a good idea! We'll throw out the public tenants and we'll take their homes and we'll. Um, um, you know, we'll then sell it off. Um, give, it uh, give, it the, it to... give it to the deserving rich. That's right. <laughs> You're well put, Anna. Yes, exactly right. I mean, it's just quite shocking. And we've been on these estates. It's not true to say that they're dysfunctional. We've got... Um, there's lovely open spaces, there's children's play areas. Um, the children are looked after by all of the tenants. But Hello? also, yeah, yeah, I'm still here. The The thing that's really interesting to me is this notion of the public, the, the ordinary people should go cap in hand to the powers that be when in actual fact these are public assets. This idea that everybody should cringe in the corner and say, oh, I'm no good, I'm not important, I don't have a lot of money. I mean, actually, uh, the despising of socialist principles purely for the benefit of the profit motive of the small, uh, for a small group. Well, that's right. And, um, I mean, the, the question really is why, why wouldn't the government provide public housing and look after its citizens? Why wouldn't it do that? Um, and, I mean, it's the right, you know, all the wrong questions are being asked. And what we really need is a large-scale build of new public housing along the lines of the 60s, um, and and that's really what is required. So it's a complete and utter nonsense that the government can't manage things well. That's just a totally discredited argument as well. And it's a nonsense that the government shouldn't be in the provision of goods and services and caring for their people. I mean, you know, why, why do we have governments then, you might ask the question. The, um, and we're terribly concerned 
um, about what really is going on. We've, um, at that forum last week, we had a declaration um, and we're asking people to um, support that declaration, which is basically saying that, um, you know, we want public housing, we want the government to reverse its decision to be uh, and to go back to the drawing board and re redraw what they're doing to put the money into public housing stock to um, you know upgrade where it's necessary and and extend public housing. And also something that jumps out at me, ensure that individuals and families are not victimised by government failure to maintain public property. Well, well, that's exactly right, isn't it? They've um, they've run it down. Um, and so that some of the properties are not up to scratch, but nowhere near what what the what what they're saying it is. As I no, say, no, no, but it's victimisation. That's what it is. It's for they have a, a particular agenda. They're using private public partnership strategies as a, a so called answer to their uh, job as government, and they've set it clear, made it clear to the general public that. Uh, uh, this is an answer to the problem of homelessness, but in actual fact, if you look, the devil is in the detail. In actual fact, it's a land grab. Another land grab. Another land grab. That's exactly right. And of course, the thing, what what is uh, even is, is just as appalling, is that it will end up being there's be more homeless. Because the homelessness problem is is increasing. It's not decreasing. There's not going to be sufficient. Um, extra additional public housing and what's going to happen to people. The other horror of it, of it all is that they're only going to build a lot of the walk-ups at the moment, uh, three three bedroom for the and you know catering for larger families they're only going to be building one and two bedroom places so the question is what happens to those families who have been relocated how are they going to come back they've been told that there's going to be um, some movable walls in some of the property so not to worry um, you know we're talking about people with larger families um, and they're only going to rebuild one and two bedroom units. And what they're doing is, of course, <laughs> they're getting more properties. They're, you know, the density is going to be more. You're going to get more units and fewer tenants. It's okay. just, hmm. uh, what, just what, what did the meet? You, you made a declaration, and what's the next step? Well, that's that's what we're trying. We're we're coming together now. Um, next week, we've just got to pull all of that together. There was a range of ideas, um, including one that um, you know could be done almost straight away, and that is to get primary coloured um, sheets and hang them out of the windows with let to let people know what's going on. That was one of the ideas. A moratorium is another idea. Um, so we're going to see if we can. Uh, develop um, um, you know a mass movement around this and really put um, you know put the government on notice that this is to to change direction on this that this policy uh, stinks and um, they're not looking after their people at all and these are some you know some of the most vulnerable people in the state and this is how we're going to treat them they're going to be chucked out of their homes by the end of the year how would you feel if you were just told pack your bags couldn't tell you where you're going don't know how for the house long but be ready to go at the end of year celebrations well I mean isn't that just the most sensitive of um, how you might handle a situation and we're saying stage it in. 
leave the people in their localities. We've got kids going to school. We've got people going to their local churches. We've got community facilities on these estates. We've got open spaces for people to breathe. All of that's going to be gone. I, I, you know, it'd be doubtful how much even green space is going to be, you know, with grass there at the end of this process. And you're looking at walk-ups now that are, you know, just ups one set of stairs are going to be replaced with 12, 12 story high, um, you know, uh, buildings for people. This well, is, you know, Lou, Lou, it, it strikes me that uh, words are cheap and when the government has spokespeople talking about how everybody will have a place to go to and all that sort of stuff, I would like them to prove it. I'd like them to prove they should be showing people uh, and the public what they're really doing because, you know, when they were talking about homeless people and they were saying, oh, you know, there is crisis accommodation, I went down and spoke to those people. They get three days in a motel and then they're kicked out. That's not an answer. So, you know, you. you know, glossing over uh, actual what you actually sh- – uh, you're not in the uh, – you're not – purely in the market for profit. The government is there to govern. Uh, Lou, can you tell our listeners uh, where they can contact or get involved in uh, hands-off public housing? Well, at the moment, it's best to um, to ring either the uh, the church, the Unitarian Church, or, or for fair go for pensioners, because what's happened <laughs> is that we only had enough money... <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it always the way um, for for the for the initial stage? And we had our own phone number and everything. But now we've got to, you know, we're addressing that this week. We've got to find some more money. We've got to get a new phone number for the hands off public housing. All of those things. And it's you know it's the usual thing. The people who are trying to do something about it. Um, um, you know, have uh, are running off the smell of an oily rag. So yeah, it so, would be better just to so um, the, the, ring o four double seven. Two three six double eight zero at the moment, and as soon as we can, we will get the new phone number to people. Good on you, Lou. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Many thanks, Annie. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast. We've come to the end of the program, really. But before we do, and I give you a wrap up, very important message. Hello? Listen, I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy-legged feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman. The battle you've all been waiting to see. The battle of the sexes. You want to see it, right? Then get along and support 3CR at the Palace Withgarth Cinemas, 89 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday, October 5th, from 6.30pm. For a screening of Battle of the Sexes. You're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the women's winner. The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology. <laughs> the story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online at 3cr.org.au, direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Battle of the Sexes screening, Thursday, October the 5th from 6.30pm. Does she have the nerve? Call Bobby. Tom, it's on. I need somebody. Not just anybody. You know I need someone. 
Liberty Victoria presents Fearless Voices, a compelling afternoon blending the sweet and angry songs of John Lennon, performed by Liz Stringer and Matt Walker with a cacophonous cabal of shouters, Casey Bonetto, Alicia Sometimes, Paul Stewart and Stuart Grant, along with Melbourne's best slam poets. The event will be emceed by Johnny Topper on Sunday the 1st of October at the Thornbury Theatre. Doors open at 2pm and for bookings head to libertyvictoria.org.au Fearless Voices, Sunday the 1st of October, 2pm at the Thornbury Theatre. Liberty Victoria, defending and extending civil liberties and human rights, is a 3CR supporter. Please help me, help me, help me. Fortieth anniversary celebrations, Anarchist World This Week live broadcast, Wednesday, twentieth September, ten a.m. to eleven a.m. Unitarian Church, one hundred and ten Grey Street, East Melbourne. Doors open nine thirty a.m. Live broadcast, discussion, lunch provided by the West Papuan community. Fifteen dollars for the lunch. Join us. Fortieth anniversary celebrations of the Anarchist World This Week on Community. Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Well, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast for another week. Uh, I'll give you a lowdown. Well, who did we speak to? We spoke to Don Sutherland about uh, the tumultuous industrial relations that uh, landscape that we're all living in at the moment in Australia. Let's hope that there is a scalp on the pike and that could be Michaela Cash, not just Nigel Hatchkiss. Uh, Coming uh, after that was Phil Cleary talking about Vic Market and uh, the supposed uh, glorification of the site by uh, Mayor Robert Doyle. He was talking to Marcus Harrington. Welcome back, Marcus. He will be returning to the Solidarity Breakfast team over the next months. And uh, after that, we got This Is The Week That Was, followed by Lou Wheeler talking about hands-off public housing. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and I thought I'd play something that might be enlivening. It's called We Are The People by Empire of the Sun. Swimming in December Heading for the city lights And I seven five We sharing each other Nearer than father Scent of the lemon Drips from your
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.